0: of Insaniyat. I'm your host, Anna Tishkov, and in this episode, we are in conversation with Ted Swedenberg, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Arkansas. Before jumping in, I want to give the audience some historical context, and for those who are new to Palestine's history. The following conversation centers on a grassroots Palestinian uprising that occurred during the British occupation of Palestine. Known as the Great Revolt, which lasted from 1936 to 1939, it began with a spontaneous outbreak of a nationwide general strike in April 1936, which lasted until October of that same year. Palestinians in the late 1920s and 30s, especially the low and middle classes, peasants in the countryside, intellectuals, and youth, were growing fed up with divisions among the elite political class and the ineffectiveness of its leadership. Tensions were intensified by surging numbers of European Jewish immigrants to Palestine during these decades. Many Palestinian peasants, who had been the backbone of the economy, were becoming landless through Zionist land sales and discriminatory agricultural policies, or by Arab landlords who sold their lands for profit. While the local economy continued to unravel, The global economic depression also hit Palestine in the early 1930s. As Palestine became more colonized, Palestinian grassroots movements were already boycotting British goods and engaged in anti-British and anti-Zionist activities. The general strike in 1936 also followed the British killing of a figure called Qassam, who had organized an armed revolt against the British and was respected as a leader by the people. In 1939, the British military effectively squashed the uprising. And the effects on Palestinian society were devastating. 10% of adult Palestinian men were either killed, wounded, imprisoned, or thrown into exile. The Great Revolt is a crucial chapter in Palestinian anti-colonial resistance history. Professor Ted Swedenberg's book on the subject, which we discuss in this episode, turns to popular memory and centers those who participated in the fight for freedom in the late 1930s. Lastly, when we mention refugees in this episode, we refer to Palestinian families who, one decade after the Great Revolt, were stripped of their lands and homes in 1948, the year when over 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their cities and villages by Zionist armies, a process that continues across Palestine today. The following conversation took place on May 18th, 2021. Welcome so much, Professor Swedenberg, to this episode of the Insaniyat podcast, Voices of Insaniyat. I'm pleased to be here with you. And before we begin, I do want to just recognize the moment that we're in and, you know, what a time to be speaking about the 1930s revolt. (laughs) So we're in a moment now of uh, mass mobilization of Palestinians across Palestine from Al-Lid, Haifa, the West Bank, across the whole country, united against ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah and the ongoing Nakba, with the massacre happening to families in Gaza in this round of Israeli onslaught. Uh, There's a general strike happening tomorrow that was launched from Jerusalem today and is spreading across Palestine and uh, refugee camps in Lebanon and Syria and beyond into the diaspora. This upheaval feels significant as young people are leading the movement on their own terms, unapologetically and boldly. And what is also unprecedented is we are seeing Palestinians rising above 73 years of Israeli policies of fragmentation, policies that have sought to separate and keep Palestinians from one another. And Palestinians are rising above these policies from the river to the sea.
1: Indeed. I'm um, both horrified by what is happening to people in Gaza. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there. I haven't. And extremely... Cheered by all the resistance that's going on uh, inside Israel, in the occupied territories, Jordan, Lebanon, demonstrations all around the world. Yeah, but, um, I hope it helps stop it. I don't know what else to to wish for. Freedom for Palestine, of course. But...
0: Yes. Yeah, I would love to just dive in. We have we have a lot we'll to do it. Okay, so. Let's begin on an autobiographical note. Sure. Um, How did you come to be a scholar of Palestine? Uh, I'm curious about the important moments in your upbringing that politicized you. Um, I understand that you visited the West Bank when you were 12. Uh, Was this trip important to you or what were some of the other formative moments for you?
1: Probably there are a lot of formative moments. It's hard to sort of pick out, uh, you know, what are the high points or maybe low points. You know, my parents, especially my dad, he was a he was a big um, civil rights uh, supporter. He took he took me and my brother and my mom to see Martin Luther King speak at the Cow Palace in San Francisco in I think 1958 or 59 or something like that. He was very committed to that. So that was I mean, you know, he was a Methodist minister, but he was like sort of in the progressive uh, not that they they had named things that way, but at, at that time. But you know, he, he was progressive mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways, but very religious. And so um, we had uh, a friend who had been in our church who went to Jordan to work for what was point uh, four, and then became USAID. He was a hydrologist, good friend of my parents, and uh, invited us to go visit. And so we were there for some time um, in living in Amman or staying in Amman and then also sometime in Jerusalem. And there was a, a church, a congregation that he had been involved in setting up that listened to sermons from my, that my dad taped in Las Gadas, California and then sent over and they had so they had church services with sermons for my dad. And uh, some of the members of the church were, or, uh, um, besides mm-hmm. being embassy people were like in involved in relief work. Right. So that they were working with Palestinians with UNRWA or, um, Church World Service, Lutheran stuff like that, uh, and then then um, uh, he had colleagues that were Palestinian um, that he worked with who were hydrologists. One of them, quite—I'm not even going to mention his name—but one of them, quite a, a name that people would know. Um, and and so we got you know like we, everybody had a different story about <laughs> what was going on in Israel Palestine that we'd ever heard before. It was quite, it was very uh, eye-opening, and and our host made sure that we, you know, got as much information as, as we possibly could. And then we went to Israel and, uh, stayed in a kibbutz, but also went up to Nazareth and sort of heard the story of Palestinians, um, in Israel. And, I, I, you know, there's a lot of experiences. And then, mm-hmm. so, so that, that experience, uh, inspired my parents to want to go live in the Middle East. So uh, my dad managed to get a job in Beirut in 1964 and we moved and then, You know, expats, you can say whatever you want about them in U.S. expats. um, And, you know, I went to school with, you know, kids whose parents worked for, I don't know, you know, Pan Am and USAID and the embassy and Aramco and this and that and the other. But um, people did get a sense from living there that there was something else going on about Israel-Palestine than what you heard in the United States, even if, like on other kind of political issues, you know, people, maybe they weren't progressive, but, you know, like, you no, know, what Israel's doing in Palestine, it's not necessarily so cool. Of course, there were people in the embassy that were, you know, work in the U.S. foreign policy. So, But anyway, you know, those discussions were about, and um, yeah. I was a reader, so my, my, my parents were trying to educate themselves. So, you know, there weren't tons of books on the subject, but there was um, prominent uh, Jewish anti-Zionists who've been active in the U.S. Mm-hmm. since the '50s, Alfred Lilienthal, uh, Rabbi Elmer Berger. They had they had an organization. I forget the name of it. Um, mm-hmm. The Hudi Menuhin's Dad Moshe Menuhin. and there were there were also books by people that had been mm-hmm. uh, involved in UN uh, on the Armistice Line, and they would write books and sort of expose what Israel had been doing. So my parents had friends who were um, worked for uh, for uh, for UNRA. So they were in Gaza in like '65, visiting it, um, and we used to go, we used to go down because of you know the religious, <laughs> the Christian stuff. Um, I mean, we used to go down uh, fairly frequently to the West Bank on holiday. You know, we were familiar with it. We were evacuated in '67 because of the '67 war from from Lebanon. So it really did it it marked marked our life when I graduated from high school, um, 1968. Me and two of my friends went to visit a friend of ours who who lived in Israel, uh, worked for the embassy. Used to be able to go back and forth. So he was he, his parents lived in Tel Aviv, but he went to he went to school in Beirut. You, just, you know, you could drive back and forth. We visited him, and then we went to the West Bank, and we're like you know eighteen year old um, kids, but we're gonna you know we're gonna go check it out. We're hanging around in Jerusalem, and then we decided we'd go up north, and we got on a bus, took a bus up to Nablus, and then got on another bus and uh, the soldiers stopped the bus and they looked at us kids and they said, you know, it's really dangerous here. You guys probably get out. It's five o'clock. I know, you think we're like, yeah, screw that. We're staying on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were trying, I think we were going to Nazareth. I can't exactly remember. Anyway, so we're on the bus and then like people are talking to us on the bus in English, of course. And they just like, well, why don't you get off of a village and stay overnight? Well, Tell you some more stories. I think it's Sila Zahara. I'm not really sure. Um, mm. Somewhere around there between Nablus and, and, and Janine. So we stayed overnight and then all these, like the Mukhtar and all these people, like they broke curfew because there was curfew at at at, oh. at, uh, at dusk, right? Of course, there weren't soldiers oh. around, but, you know, they were they were like breaking curfew to come over and there's these 18-year-old American kids that are going to tell us all about their stuff. It like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's unbelievable,
1: right? You know the but the usual uh, stuff. Then I was in college and anyway I should speed it up. But I was in college in the states for a year and then uh, went back to Beirut and uh, went to AEB as an undergrad. And there I kind of ceased being like an expat life kind of person. And my friends were from all over the world, but a lot of them Palestinians. I mean, I was already like radicalized in a sense. I mean, I was like against the war. And, but, you know, meeting Palestinians in the resistance, students or I went to Amman a couple times, 1970, uh, <laughs> uh, with friends and went to around a lot of resistance offices. and met a lot of people and that it was really a Democratic front, the folks that sort of got me into reading Marxism seriously and taking it seriously. So, I mean, I just got a lot of education from, uh, from these people. I guess I had a pretty personal connection as well as a political connection just due to the fact of having a lot of friends and hearing a lot of stories.
0: That's a a fascinating trajectory. Um, I was also going to ask, and you touched on this just now, um, you do write about your religious relationship to Palestine, also in the book. Mm -hmm. I love how you said you read and studied the old New Testaments over oatmeal or Cheerios growing up. Um, And as you said now, uh, you're being introduced to Palestine through this framework on some level. And my question is, what has endured of this relationship until today?
1: It's it's a great question. (laughs) I mean, um, you know, I was brought up very religious. My dad was a minister. I went to church every week. Pretty much as soon as I left home, I stopped going to church. Well, then I moved back in with my parents and then I started again, but I mean, I was not, I was not a believer, but I mean, I'm sure like, you know, my dad's, you know, my upbringing was, um, I don't know, about social justice and equality and democracy and so on. And my dad, when he was in the 1930s, considered himself a socialist and he was pretty progressive and and lefty. You know, I got something from the messages, those sorts of messages.
0: Mhm, absolutely. And you mentioned the um the Jewish antisemites as well that you were reading. Was that was that kind of like a, a, another dimension that sort of persuaded you or, or it, it it's something that um is becoming more and more visible, I think, now with with my generation, but was more buried perhaps?
1: You know, um I think in the 1950s When Elmer Berger and Alfred Lilienthal were writing, you know, and people like that were writing their stuff. In fact, the Jewish community wasn't as Zionist as it became, I mean, there was more space for kind of mainstream anti-Zionism in American society. As far as I'm not an expert on this, but that, you know, that my understanding is that that's the case and it may really even be, especially the, the 67 war that really altered things. Um, And, you know, I, I mean, but that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, like he's twelve years old. Like I don't know, sort of. Okay, these. I mean, I was reading it for the information, right, and for the story. The fact that they were Jewish anti-Zionists at the time did not. um, Hmm. It's because I was in Lebanon. Okay, that's why. No, I mean. And and also, I grew up in a in a community in California where there were basically no Jews around or like there was one or two. I mean, you know, it's just very, very, very white and monochromatic in ways that. So, I mean, I do have to say that anti-Semitism was Mm -hmm. uh, pretty rampant in my school in Beirut not in the sense that there were any Jews around to be beaten up or anything like that or yell at, but just like, you know, that the, the discourse.
0: You mean the conflation between Judaism and Zionism?
1: Yeah, and then and then the anti-Israel stuff just fed into it. So one had to kind of get re-educated out of that, um, you know, especially going to the United, you know, coming to the United States from Beirut. And I, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, then that, that being in the U.S., getting involved in, well, I mean, I was just around for a year and a half, but I mean, you know, some Palestine work. And if you did Palestine work in 1971, like you were going to be hanging out with Jews all time, right? Because they were Jewish anti-Zionists right there, you know, like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it was not.
0: That's really wonderful to hear actually. Yeah. I- I'm Jewish. I didn't mention that. But yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, um, so I-, I will reveal something that has never been revealed before. Um, really? Uh, because um, I thought it would hurt my career, but now my career is almost over, so I don't really care. But um, mm-hmm. I, I was back at Swarthmore for one semester, and I I worked for the PLO office in in New York City. Oh, wow. For Rashid Hussein, Rashid Hussein, the the poet was the the, bo- the big boss whose name I forget was away for the summer, so Rashid Hussein, the, the poet was my boss. But that was that was very cool, and, and like one of the one of the great things, one of the cool things that happened was is like a couple. You know, Israeli Matz Pen members came in. You know, from the New Left in Israel, they came into the people office. And they're telling stories. One of them is like, you know, I, I grew up in a in a kibbutz on the border with Syria. It was always peaceful. Nothing <laughs> was ever happening. They're just making up. They're just making up stories. So, yeah, if you were doing doing Palestine work uh, at that time, I mean, there were always, you know, it's like Jewish people were always there. They were always with you. You were friends with them. It was no, I mean, I've always learned a lot from them and of course, really respect them. I mean, not that I was thinking, oh, you're so brave for doing it. It's just like, You're just this leftist person like me You happen to be Jewish, you know?
0: Right. It's interesting because I think that's a generational difference too. It's interesting that you didn't kind of think twice about it.
1: But, there's, but the thing is that then it was much smaller slice of the Jewish community that was like, right? And now it's huge. Mm, You know, like it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a a sea change. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, I thought it was, it was very important for me to like, you know, at that time when I started doing that work to, you know, you meet an Israeli leftist and you're, you know, you meeting American Jewish leftists, you know, who are as pro-Palestine as anyone else. So I I guess another, I mean, I I wanted to mention this was that, that um, also in Beirut, like, you know, when I was in college, Maxime Rodenzo wrote this great book called Israel and the Arabs. That was the goddamn book at the time, right? It was the best book that you could read.
0: That came out in the 70s, hey?
1: Yeah, from the leftist perspective, I mean, I read it like three times or something like that. I recommended it to everybody. That was the book. And, of course, there were there, there were other books. I mean, you know, Palestinians were, there were Palestine sources as well, too. But that was like the most, as I remember at the time, like the most succinct history of the period fifties and into the sixties.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, actually, you mentioned that, um, that book being important. Do you remember what books you had with you, uh, in your suitcase or in your backpack when you were doing field work in the West bank? Like what were you reading and thinking with?
1: That's that is a hilarious question. (laughs) (laughs) No one ever asked me. And, And, um, I, I, I didn't bring any, uh, Books on Palestine or theory or anything. Okay. I, I I don't know what I brought. I brought some, I brought some fiction. I remember reading Doris Lessing. And I would borrow books from friends, right? And the fatter, the better, right? Because <laughs> I didn't, you know, sometimes I would be, you know, away from anybody that had any books for a while. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, and sometimes I would be, I don't know, you know, there was a curfew or I don't know what I think it was going on. It was up at Nablus. I need to like have something. So I read mm-hmm. the Golden Notebooks by Doris Lessing, which is a fat one, and then I read Robert Burrow's, uh *The Path to Power*, which is volume one bio of LBJ. <laughs> I was reading, so I was just reading fiction.
0: You know, it's funny you mention uh, fiction because I actually I noticed that in the introduction to your book, which we will talk about in just a second, the introduction reads very much like a memoir with all the biographical details that you include. And uh, last summer, actually, speaking of um, thick fiction, I read Isabella Hamad's novel, The Parisian, which, uh, for those listening who don't know, uh, the book is about um, a young man's life based, I believe, on her great-grandfather. It's uh, in France during the First World War in Nablus under the British occupation. And the book is excellent. And I noticed she wrote in her acknowledgement... Lady
1: Smith blurbs it, let's just say
0: that. (laughs) yeah. It's, um, it's, it's really special. And I noticed in her acknowledgements that she spoke to you as an interlocutor um, during her own research. So first, I'd love to hear more about that. But my question is, uh, in your opinion, what is the relationship between fiction and history? How do the two genres, historical ethnography and historical fiction, allow for certain narratives to take shape? or shape how stories about the past are told.
1: Let me talk about Isabel Hamad because, um, I mean, she wrote, she sent me this email out of the blue. I'm writing this book. I have some questions about 36 revolt. Could you answer some questions for me? And I don't remember what the questions were. I mean, I think I could answer a couple and maybe I couldn't answer the other ones. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a big list, it was pretty fast. And then she asked me if there were any other sources for her to look at. I I had the uh manuscript of Matthew Kelly's book on Britain and the Revolt and stuff I forget the title um which came out in 2017 but I was I I was a, a re- I was I reviewed the manuscript and I thought well okay so this is this is the thing that I know so I'm sending you this but use it as you want but don't pretend like you never saw it so that was that's really the extent of of uh my help um and I I since you wrote to me and and mentioned it, I just started reading it. Um, so I'm, I'm about 50 or 60 pages in it. It's great. And and I've heard from other people. It's great. And I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm reading it. And I'm, you know, it's pretty thrilling to get a blur from Zadie Smith and you get thanked in the, you know, <laughs> in the, in the end notes. So that's pretty cool. Um, shoot. Okay. Relationship between fiction and, and ethnography. You know, because, I, you know, I was trying to tell a story that was a kind of particular kind of analytical story, you know, I'm like, basically, I'm hearing all these different accounts, right, uh, that have, you know, that interpret the revolt in, in different ways. And, you know, I'm a social scientist, I'm supposed to try to figure out, uh, you know, I'm supposed to try to make sense of, you know, why um, you, you heard these, you know, quite varying accounts of what was what had been happening by people who participated in it. So I think in terms of telling like a, you know, a in really interesting and great story, I think I was hamstrung by disciplinary expectations and, you know, expectations that you need to write, not a certain kind of book to write, you know, to get tenure, but not just a long story at, at, at the time. And, and we were in a pretty theoretical moment in anthropology, which I guess is probably, you know, still going on. So I think that we have, as anthropologists, this kind of theoretical you know you you need to engage with some theory of some sort which is which is fine i mean you know it's good but it it's 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 it it may not be the best for telling a story i mean i did try to write it so people could read it um, and not you know not overload it with too much i think historians as you know as a discipline historians might have an easier time mm. of 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 uh, connecting those two you know the kind of, you know, the virtues of, 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 you know, fiction and, you know, creative, creative kinds of narratives um, than, than we do in anthropology, or maybe I was just not skilled enough to be able to do that. Um, my research partner, Sonia Nimmer, who we could talk about more later, was like, I, there's a couple points, I can't re- exactly remember now, but, you know, she would like, she was extremely creative and imaginative, um, and would sometimes sort of introduce these kinds of you know, counterfactual questions into interviews or discussions, something like that. And that was, that was really cool. And of course, um, some of, some of your listeners will know that she went on to become a writer of children's fiction and just won an award Mm -hmm. for one of her books. And, you know, she's, she's really quite amazing. So yes, she would have had a better, better, uh, I don't know, go at turning this thing into a more uh, interesting story than, um, than me. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: yeah. Um, I do want to ask, um, because I want to get to your book. Um, so in in the introduction, um, th- the book is called uh, Memories of Revolt, the 1936 to 1939 Rebellion and the Palestinian National Past. Um, in the introduction, you do mention th- uh, the absence of studies, Uh, as you mentioned just now, um, of the 1930s revolt against the British, not only in Western or Israeli historiography, but also in the Palestinian canon. And so I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on um, sort of why so few people have written about it.
1: Yeah, there were, I'm trying to remember, Subhi Yassin and somebody, I'm forgetting the names. There are a couple of books that came out in the 50s, 60s in Arabic, um, that, you know, they have, they give you names and they give you details and they tell you about battles and so on and so forth, but, um, they, they, it just exaggerates so much that they're very hard to work with. Um, so I looked at those and it was like pff, hard to get anything out of them. I've, I, I did go back and look at them since, because they did give information, you know, they tell you about battles and you kind of had to take it, some of the stuff with the grain of thought because they would say that, you know, 30 British were killed and, you know, it just um, and there were, um, the, there were important participants from the middle, you know, radical middle class who wrote memoirs, Hamid Aizat Darwaza, Akram um, Zaitar, and so on and so forth. You know, and there were books that, that, um, that dealt with it. But if we're talking about Palestinian sources, but, but no one who went into mm-hmm. the revolt, and especially the rural part of the revolt, in any way like what Yahashua um, Borat. Porat did in his uh, in his uh, second volume of his uh, what is it Arab nationalist movement in Palestine? I've forgotten the the name, which was a great resource for me um, and for Sonia because it had a list of all the commanders in back. So we had this list with us all the time, and we could take it out and ask people about you know oh in your area there's so-and-so. so and so and so. The question though is is you know why not much Palestinian stuff? Is that
0: I guess. Um- Within, uh, the the way you say it in in your introduction is um, there's just an absence of it in Palestinian kind of official history, mm-hmm. but also in, in yeah. um, like Western academia. Yeah. Um, you know, you do use oral history methods and, you know, that generation is probably.
1: Yeah, they're them. gone. Yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were literally dying as we were going around. It was really
0: yeah. And you mentioned that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I, I mean, the, the thing I would say is that, you know, there was, the, there, there was a fair amount written about 36 revolt, but nothing that, that, you know, dug into on the ground, what happened in the revolt at the grassroots level, you know, after the, the strike was over when a lot of middle-class people were involved in, and actually were around because a lot of those, a lot of the leadership got, you know, exiled or had to run off, um, in 30, late late 1937 so that was that seemed like that was the real the absence and of course Sonia Nemer you know I figured out the same thing at the same time you know at, at the University of Exeter nobody's do, you know nobody's done this and I mean you know why well you would have had to do go interview people um, I don't think the idea of doing oral history in Palestinian institutions at the time, and of course, Palestinian institutions at the at the time. I mean, you talk about Birzeit; there weren't as many colleges and stuff like that. Um, Birzeit hadn't been a four-year college for that long. I mean, when when I was an undergraduate between '69 and '74, there were kids from Beirut, like who were my classmates. They went to two years at, at Birzeit and then they went to AUB, right? Because it was only Birzeit was only two years, right? So Birzeit yeah. was a fairly young institution then. Oral history was, you know, in the Arab world in general, was not something that was given a great deal of credence. I mean, it was, it was. I, I think maybe even in the discipline of, of history, it was somewhat, I mean, in, in, in the West, people did it, but it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't what it became. Um, I think that's, I think just methodologically, you know, if you're talking about Palestine or, or the West, not so well developed. Um, anthropologists, from the West um, were kind of banned from their advisors to go do field work. <laughs> so there, there were two uh, that I know of that did field work in the West Bank before I was there, and George Bicharat, who, uh, a, a legal anthropologist, did his work on lawyers. I mean, we were like the, you know, almost the first people doing that. It's 1984, 1985, right? It was Julie Petit in, in Beirut. And Rosemary Saig, you know, maybe you wanted to bring this up later, but um, we can mention that, um, uh, Ros- I mean, when I started doing my work, Rosemary Saig was, you know, I was in touch with her because I knew her from years ago in Beirut, and about what I was doing. And she said, you know, like, I was always trying to get the palace of TLO to go around and interview these guys. Because there were there were important commanders in the camps in Lebanon. And Abdullah Schleifer interviewed, uh, I think it's Abu Ibrahim al-Kabir, if I'm not mistaken. And that's, you know, I mean, and maybe he wrote something later, I can't remember. But I mean, you know, they were, there was a big resource there and they didn't want to do it. And what she always told what she told me was, look, you know, the revolt, because of the kinds of things that I was interested in that happened during the revolt, I mean, it was very contentious, right? And and it, it like it to to, I mean, that was that was her explanation that if you sort of brought it up, then it would bring up all kinds of feuds and people having been killed or fighting against each other and so on and so forth. Because in some places it did, I would say, devolve into something like a little civil war in, you know, various places. Hmm. So they just, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't supported. You know, so, so notables writing their books about it and so on. There was that. But what the peasants were up to and even like the you know the commanders, if they were still around. I mean, they weren't. You know that that this story wasn't out there. I would say that that re- more recently, there's been a bunch of stuff. Um, Layla Parsons has a book on Kaukji. It's not just about 3639, um, but it's like very good. I mean, just you learn so much about Kaukji and and <laughs> you know that, that once he was there. Uh, Mark Sanigan has a book on on Kassam, which is fantastic. Um, Matthew Hughes just published a book on 3639. It's kind of a brick. Um, I think it's Cambridge. And he looked, see it seemingly looked at every archive that the British have anywhere. And it's all, it's basically on their counterinsurgency methods. It's problematic, but if you want to, I'm, I'm going to do a review of it, so I'm, <laughs> I won't go into. it. Um, but um, like, it details just about every atrocity that the British committed that he could, or you know, or, or you know, severe punishment or whatever that they used. Um, I mean, it's very damning and, and and detailed. I'm going to say this in review. I mean, the, what, what I didn't like about it is that it says, well, yeah, they were really tough, but, you know, they were really a lot tougher in other places. <laughs> so, like, you know, they were kind of doing a light touch in Palestine. And I'm thinking, you know, the, the result of squelching the revolt was that, you know, the Palestinians were weakened in it, 750,000 of them, I had to leave in 48, 49. So, you know, this was <laughs> like, meant like that, I think problem. probably that But anyway, so there's that. And then Matthew Kelly's book. So there's, and, and, you know, there's, I mean, those are books, it's just books, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. And, and I only recently started to try to catch up a little bit, because I got asked to review <laughs> the books, because once I, you know, once I finished, not to go into a lot of detail, but like, I had trouble on the job market, so I started switching subjects. I, I was I, I was kind of, what do I want to say, without putting it um, in any kind of dramatic way, but I mean, I was kind of nudged out of doing Palestine studies for the sake of getting um, jobs because cause at that time it was, I think, a lot less acceptable to be doing what I was doing. You know, you can find lots of stuff on 3639 now. Although I would say it's still it, it's based on archival sources and not there are some memoirs that have been written and people you know the, and, and and these people are pretty scrupulous i guess uh sanigan went around and interviewed um like grand grandkids of Kassam and stuff like that so he has his would be like of all those kind of the closest to um getting at you know the the grassroots movement i mean around Kassam, but um and I, I, the, the thing is, I I was like, all these books came out in the last few years, and I'm like, what, what's up with that? <laughs> what, why did this happen all of a sudden? I don't I don't really understand what prompted right. um, all this. Yeah, all this work.
0: I um, mean, the other um, so there go. those studies, as you said, um, are archivally based and more of the kind of capital H history, it's sounding to me, versus your study being based on the oral interviews. For the
1: most part, yeah. I did yeah. some archival stuff just to check, but, you know. Right. And wish I had more but, time to do more, but anyway, yeah.
0: Of course, yeah. But the um, the kind of motor behind the book very much is these, uh, yeah. this attention to not the events, and, you know, Rosemary Sykes' voice is kind of here with us, but um, it's, it's not what happened, but how the stories um, are told and retold or how people are interacting uh, with these memories is what interested you um, throughout the book or it's something that came across to me. And um, I mean, the other dimension of oral history is the way that these stories are circulated or disseminated within the community, um, not only to the sort of academic audience and of course mm-hmm. with the absence of of any state or official archive or no access to that oral history in the Palestinian context like we we can't overstate the the significance of it i guess where i'm going is my question um did you gain any insight um into how younger generations of palestinians and from the families of of the rebels that you spoke to are learning about their own resistance history does oral history kind of become very important there
1: you know it's a great question and the I would say a weakness of the research right is that what we were doing is you know we had a list of people that we wanted to see and we're trying to see meet all of them and uh, very often we just went once and spent a couple hours or three hours or you know four hours and, and taped an interview and so didn't really have much of a sense of how this is getting uh, passed along. I mean, it, in some cases, you know, some kids or grandkids were around um, and it seemed like this was maybe the first time they heard these stories, right? Probably not many grandkids were very interested in having their grandpa tell these stories about what happened 50 years ago and on and on and on. And on, and on.
0: Yeah, their grandpa this, goes like, again, yeah.
1: But, but, you know, and then there were some, there were some um, people, like the sons of, of some of the people that we that we met, who were especially if they were like politically affiliated and so on. I mean, who were quite interested in you know in this stuff and sort of and, and knew a lot um, and were interested in sitting with their dad um, and hearing and, and and hearing the stories. Pretty big range. And then mm-hmm. in terms of like young people, I actually talked to about it. I mean, they were, you know, it was in Ramallah or Jerusalem or. Nablus or something. They were students, and they didn't have mostly those stories because uh, those stories were not from there. A lot. I mean, in a lot of cases, not from their milieu, right? Uh, especially if they weren't from villages. So it was. It was. Um, I mean, I talk about this in the book, but it's really like sort of, you know. I mean, I don't know how many times he tells. and asked you what you're doing. i an anthropologist um, and uh, working on. Working on the 1936-39 revolt, name Kasam, right? <laughs> Had kind of, yeah. I mean, you know,
2: right?
1: I mean, it's a detail, but I mean, he wasn't a commander of the revolt. Um, mm-hmm. uh, his his example sparked it, or was was a, was an important spark. And then they knew this song, Sijinakpa, um, which is about, you know, the, the 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 heroes of 1929, who turns out probably yeah. weren't, weren't really very heroic, but they were executed, so they were martyrs. And and there was a lot of assimilation of that those guys uh, Jum, Jum, and I forget their names um, to the 36 revolt. That's a different thing. That's because there was a really famous there was a I mean there was a song um, written at the time that then was revived by uh, resistance music groups. Um, I think it's God it's Fidikulashafin I think in 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 Damascus. So people had this tape everybody had the tape. It's a great song. I mean, it's a beautiful song. Um, and the guys were, you know, they were executed by the British and the, and the, the, lyrics are, are great. But so they had these, they had these sort of images about the revolt, but not much in the way of concrete, you know, historical, um, knowledge. And that's, you know, not their fault because they weren't, you know, they, that stuff wasn't and couldn't really be taught in school except, informally you know so they were lucky they might have heard some stories and, i mean my 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 sense is that if people that it, that it was people who were in organizations who were interested in it you know in this and in, in, in particular leftist organizations right organizationally mm-hmm. and you had this kind of coherent or you know some kind of ideology about the struggle and that the people were were very interested in in, in those things yeah. and, and would i think you know i mean it wasn't what do I want to say? I mean, I don't have much data really to answer your question when it comes to, you know, the, the offspring of guys who are fighters. I mean, there's, a, I mean, I can say there's one guy whose dad we interviewed and he was a labor activist affiliated with the Democratic front and he got killed in the Intifada. Um, so, you know, his dad was a militant and he was a militant and he was a great guy. So there were people like that.
2: Um,
0: yeah. But yeah, I mean, as, um, your conversation with, uh, Rosemary Saif, I mean, because this was the rural sphere in the 1930s, a lot of them became then refugees or then probably in Lebanon or right. Jordan or,
1: yeah, it would have been great to have, uh, been able to expand you know, because they would tell us about people that, oh, so-and-so they're in Jordan, oh, so they're in Lebanon.
0: Yeah. I would love to, uh delve in a little bit now into some of the some of the language that you use throughout the book let me also yeah just say for for listeners and and uh people who haven't or have yet to read the the wonderful book um so uh you and your research partner uh al nimr interviewed former Thuar, or Rebels of the Great Revolt, Uh, you do center the peasant rural class as those who carried the revolt. Um, And you pay attention also to, which which you've mentioned just now, um, regional, local, and geographic specificities in your discussion, which I really appreciated. And carrying throughout the book is this notion of common sense memory, Um, which, from how I understood it, you're building on Antonio Gramsci's common sense uh, in relation to dominant nationalist narratives of the past. Uh, And you also include, throughout the stories that you weave, the different ways that uh, the Thuar harbour their own, quote, oppositional memories uh, and tell their internal critiques of these dominant nationalist narratives. I thought that maybe a way to dive into this, um, because I think these terms um, are not often enough delineated. How do you understand hegemony and popular, which you do use throughout your discussion? Um, what are the differences between them, if any?
2: Yeah.
1: So, um, kind of background is that, um, I mean, I think this stuff has fallen out of fashion. Maybe it'll come back a little bit into fashion. It seems like Stuart Hall is having a little bit of a revival. Yeah. Um, for reasons I don't quite know, you know, in graduate school in our study group, and you know, me myself, um, uh, we were reading a lot of Stuart Hall. We were reading a lot of of uh, work coming out of the um, Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies at Birmingham that he was the head of. So there's a, you know there's just a bunch of people that were you know influenced uh, in this sphere. So there was Stuart Hall, and and it was very Gramscian. Um, yeah in its orientation. Anyway, that's, that's what I was reading. And, 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 um, it seemed to make, it, it seemed to help me make sense of, of what I was experiencing. So, um, I'm, I'm, you know, it's been a while. It's been some time since I've, since I've been, um, you know, reading this stuff very regularly, but, you know, uh, Gramsci's, um, concern, um, was as a communist in Italy was trying to Make sense of how, uh, and, and 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 push for how communists in Italy might come to power um, after the you know the 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 you know what seemed to be a success and then failure of pro- proletarian revolution that they were hap- they were like you know they were happening all over and then not they were unsuccessful after the uh, the first world war. His sense was that. That you needed to look at, you know, if you if you wanted to come to power, you're looking at Italy. Italy is not is a somewhat underdeveloped, lesser developed, uh, not fully capitalist developed country. There are all kinds of of different um, social classes um, or fragments of classes and so on. It's not just it's not simply you know the proletarian proletariat versus the bourgeoisie majority proletariat versus you got peasants, you got artisans, you got petty bourgeoisie and so on and so forth. And their understanding of the world, he thought, you know, that is say um, in the absence of um, an organized political force that worked on their consciousness was, I don't know, what are are the terms he used? Multiplex, multiform. It's a hodgepodge, right? Of of ideas Mm -hmm. that have, that have, you know, very progressive elements or potentially progressive elements and some, he says Stone Age, I mean, you know, but, you know, maybe reactionary, it's all jumbled up and mixed up. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of the Communist Party to get hegemony was to develop some kind of of um, narrative and discourse, ideology, way of talking to people with these dis- disparate ideas to try to move it, move, you know, move everything from common sense into all good sense, or more good sense, more you know, more positive, right? And, and so, you know, for him, this was like—I mean, that's his. If I understand it correctly, like his kind of the, the influential role he played in Marxist thought is to is to develop the or, or you know amplify the importance of culture, but in a very broad sense, in mm-hmm. in the in you know the struggle for socialism. And, communism and so on so how does this apply to palestine well it just it's like so hegemony right who had hegemony you know with the palestinian population well on the one hand you had the israeli state occupying right they don't they they're not interested in hegemony of the palestinians they they like their rule over the palestinians for the most part is what um Hmm.
2: uh
1: what uh gramsci Called as the, the the other form major form of rule, which is domination, where violence is much more important than persuasion. Right, I mean, they're not the Israeli state is not interested in turning Palestinians into you know uh, citizens. <laughs> they want to you know keep them under occupation, maybe get them to go away. Right, and then and then you have a rival national movement, which is mostly outside, right, not on site. There are political organizations, right? But it doesn't have the, it it doesn't, it doesn't have the, you know, the, the institutional capacity to instill a hegemonic relationship with its, with, with the citizens or or residents of the the West Bank and Gaza Strip living under the occupation. So um, there are, there are political organizations that are trying to do this, right? uh, Fatah. Mm-hmm. Hamas Muslim Brotherhood, da 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 da, right? But they're you know, they're in competition with each other and they don't have that much institutional capacity, right? They don't have schools, they don't have
2: nice. media,
1: they don't you know, they have some I mean, there are songs and pamphlets and slogans and so on and so forth. So, like you know, what 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 Gramsci describes as common sense, right? This just, just hodgepodge of ideas that can, you know, go in different you know, the positive elements, negative elements, so on and so forth. It kind of helped me make sense of you know, like <laughs> why you get these very you know seemingly contradictory um, kinds of, of things. You know, I mean, I th- I, I I tell the story. You know that the you know the first like ah I get to meet like a guy who fought in the revolt. Right, it's so cool. I so I mean you wouldn't believe how excited I was. Um, reading about this stuff for so long, and you know um the way in which you know progressives tend to t- treat. You know, Palestinians and Palestinian says, you know, oh, you, you're going to the peasant. He's going to give you the voice of wisdom and resistance. It's fine. And the guy's like, yeah, I want to talk about it. And the British, like, yeah, I fought, but the British, it's a British plot. Like, I'm not interested in speaking to you about it. I was like, what? <laughs> so you just, you know, like you just got from people who fought in the revolt, you got a lot of different interpretations that were sometimes, you know, highly various um, and not mostly like a, a very... Co- you know what we used to say and left you know coherent line or you know uh, coherent position, unless I mean there were some who were communists um, inside Israel, in particular, who had very kind of you know clear you know class antagonism um, ideas. Although they would also say things, then that there were a few things they said you weren't really supposed to say, right? Because the, the, you know, like there was like, they got it from the party, but you know, if there had been a state and, you know, like official histories and stuff like that, they would have known, uh, you know, that's kind of taboo. Uh, that's a taboo thing. Right. Um, but for the most part, pretty coherent. So, the, so that was, um, and you know, I and I was thinking about today, right. Like our, our, our current experience. Right. I mean, so in the United yeah. States, like I live in Arkansas, um, in the South, hmm. you can run referendums for uh minimum wage and they will pass overwhelmingly in states that voted for Trump, right? So the Democrats are trying to figure out how to like I mean, or some of them are, or maybe progressive progressive Democrats, you know, how do you how do you make sense of that? Right? How can you like how can you be for voting for or increasing the minimum wage, and like have this, you know, like you have this very progressive thing that the Democratic Party won't push effectively, and then you're you're for Donald Trump, right? I mean, that's that's, you know, this is this is quite common in in um, under conditions where there's not an organization that can, you know, work effectively to um, put itself in a hegemonic position, and and you know, progressives don't. I mean, in the United States, we don't know how to do that. I mean, we, like people talk about this, but we don't know. Like, how do you, how do you get like people in rural Arkansas who want a minimum wage? Like you're happy to have a minimum wage, be $15 an hour. No, we didn't raise it that much, but you know, like get them, get them online with the other stuff. Right. So Palestinian peasants are no different in that regard. Right. I mean, at, at the, you know, at, at this particular moment. Um, so the, I don't know if, so that's, I just, you know, that's what I was reading at the time, a lot of um and it seemed to help me uh make sense of what I was hearing and that's how I kind of, you know, divided up the narratives um in in the way totally. I did. Um I'm sure if you did it, you know, like it's it's not the only way to to do it um or to think of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other tension that um, you draw attention to quite a bit is um, there's, so the nationalist narrative, which tends to place Mm -hmm. this emphasis on unity, or like a unified Mm -hmm. front, which is very much defined on cultural lines, in the sense that it's not on the lines of gender class, like it's just the Palestinian national front mm-hmm.
2: um,
0: versus mm-hmm. those narratives that you also collected, which are mentioning difference along the lines of class and the kind of interplay between those two. So mm-hmm. is, so how, so common sense memory, sort of where does that come into, how does that relate to that tension?
1: Well, you know, Pretty much everyone who was a peasant that we met had a certain sense of peasants as being different than city people, right? Um, even if they sort of gave, you know, they sort of thought that city people should be, you know, notables and stuff should be in in charge. I mean, they could, you know, like they had some at least rudimentary sense, as I think you know, most people do who are from a different class of people than, the, than the, you know, than the urban educated, right? That there was a, you know, a difference. Um, and, and, you know, there was a hierarchy that they that they recognized. It's, it, I think it's how they, they treated, how they understood what rebels did in relationship to that hierarchy, right? So some of them thought, yeah, you know, anybody that's, you know, those people, go get them, right? Right. Especially if they aren't supporting us, you know, or, or we have the right to go tax them or, you know, make fun of them or something. I mean, and in and, a and sense that, you know, the people who were dying for the cause were the, um, were peasants and others, others thought. And, you know, this is a perfectly legitimate point of view that, nah, you, you know, you went too far. Right. Um, and then, you know, our side, we, you know, our side had some corruption or people were, you know, brutal. So I think that's, you know, that's. Like I think to have a really, if I've got it right and remembering correctly, because I mean we interviewed a lot of people, and <laughs> what I remember now is in the what's in the book mostly, and not you know the general impression of all these hours we spent interviewing people. I go back and look at the stack of you know transcribed <laughs> interviews. Um, but my sense is that 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 um, the people who had a, had a sort of uh, a more coherent, you know, class consciousness kind of position, which wasn't that many were people affiliated to political leftist political mm-hmm. organizations. Um, and then if you weren't, then it was more, you know, it, it was more varied or you know, and 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 really, but most people, you know, articulated at some level a kind of nationalist, you know, like, I mean, they were in favor of of national unity,
2: right?
1: yeah. Um who is gonna who is gonna be in charge of leading the national unity, right? Was right. the question right? He's just supposed to give orders from Hajjameen and those, you know, the 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 central committee up in, um, or the you know the leadership that's in exile in, in Damascus after thirty seven thirty eight, or you know, like do your local commanders have, you know, some knowledge and some say as mm-hmm. as, as to what's to be done? I don't know if that's answering your question, but that's
3: um,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it, it was fascinating to me also the the section about the kufiya uh, where mm-hmm. um, sort of the way in which that also gets represented by the nationalist narrative as the unifying sort of aesthetic or symbol uh, versus, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you you write that the Kufiya, based on all of these conversations, um, you found to be a symbol of contingency and disruption rather than, uh, yeah. yeah, so... Yeah.
1: I mean, that was, that was interesting. Um, and probably I was paying attention to it because when I sort of got into Palestine, Palestine struggle, um, then, you know, I, I mean, 1971 demonstrations in DC, you know, those of us who are pro palestine we all got the kafias on, man. Everybody, yeah. It's sort of like, you know, put it on and, I mean, you know, you're doing that, right? <laughs> Solidarity yeah. with Palestine. Um, so you sort of like, that's something that you're, that, that, you know, it's a, uh, And it's, you know, Yasser Arafat has got, you know, it's like all over the place. So it's something you pay Mm -hmm. attention to. And then, you know, you run across like one story about the kafia, and, oh, they imposed it in 1938, right? So it wasn't that hard. And and I'm sure you could find a lot more examples. I didn't like, you know, there's lots of stuff that you, you know, to to look at, but, you know, of lots of stories about, you know, this was a, this was imposition and there are people who didn't like it. And there are people who resisted it. It was, I mean, it was a very important symbol. And then it wasn't that hard to, you know, get stories from people we were interviewing, for people that we met who had heard stories in their families and stuff like that. Um,
0: Maybe just for the audience, if you could explain who imposed it.
1: Yeah. So in, it's summer, fall, summer, early fall of 1938. The rebels are taking over a number of the cities. Not, it's not for for a really long period of time, but they're you know you know Nablus, uh, Tulkarim, Jerusalem for for a way and stuff like that. And when when they do, they start imposing a bunch of like this is what you got to do, and you got to wear you know everybody has to take off the tarbush, right? Which is a sign of being an effendi, being middle class, being educated, being urban, and a and a sign of you know being better than the peasants who all they don't wear tarbush and or kafia, right? Everybody like it's a leveling mechanism, and then they'd impose. They'd impose. Nobody can charge rents, and uh, in some places, women aren't. Women need to, you know, put on um, hijab, even if you're Christian. I forget. There's there's other class uh, dimensions to it, and I'm forgetting what the what the details are. But you know, no paying rents, and I mean, I think in different places it was more severe on the on the uh, on the elites, and you know the the. People have told me this, but we didn't, we interviewed one guy. I can't remember if he was from Jaffa or from Haifa who had been in the revolt. So there was stuff going on in this really most important Palestinian cities, you know, at, at, in the mandate period, and which were growing the most. And, and I think the way in which they came down on um, the elites in, in Haifa and Jaffa was much more severe. Yeah. But the Kufia was part of it, right? I don't know. It's if, like if the South hillbillies... Cowboys took over the country and said everybody has to wear cowboy hats, right? I mean, that would, I think, offend a lot of people. Um, and it's not quite the same, but you know, it's <laughs> that's more of a cultural thing. Than, you know, I was looking at pictures of all the demonstration yesterday. Jeez. I mean, it, everybody either had a kafia or Palestinian flag. Those were the two things. <laughs> yeah, and 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 um, the story I tell is not the story you hear in most places. What the Kafia was about. The national movement has. I mean, it's if it's if that if that moment is discussed at all, it's like everybody put on the kafia
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. I do feel this is leading us to another question I had um, about contradictions. So you explore this throughout the book. I will say a comment that I've just been thinking about, about oral history, just because I know that was kind of the method um, of the interviews. I,
1: I should say in particular, because I was working with an oral historian.
0: Sonia yeah
1: like who was tra- like she was trained as an oral historian she had questions I had questions we put them together we kind of went through the I mean tried to kind of go through get through most of the questions that were in our in our list but I mean I, I guess what I'm saying is yeah I was anthropologist but we were doing pretty much oral history method in terms of the way we were doing interviews yeah
0: right so so f- I wonder firstly about the inherent contradictions in oral history methods in palestinian research um, i'm thinking about the fact that oral memories have transmitted for instance the experience of a collective expulsion in 1948 for the people of palestine across generations and yet as so many have said now especially feminist scholars there was historically that absence of interest on the part of national institutions for funding oral history projects, as we just spoke about with Rosemary Saif and her generation, and just how oral history wasn't taken seriously, despite how fundamental it is in a context of colonial dispossession, erasure, and ethnic cleansing, but also the ways that oral history you know, acts as an inventory of people's relationship to land and places and thus underscoring refugees and their rights to return to these places and so on and so forth. But also given that orality carries experiences that are so intensely personal, localized and lived and yet can speak to an experience of an entire people on a collective level, while also allowing how stories are retold to change over time with different inflections or silences based on what's happening in the present or in the setting of the space and and so on, as well as carrying certain continuities as these stories are retold. Um, And I think, Just these dynamics also relates to the elision of peasants and the rural sphere in the construction of the national Palestinian identity and official Palestinian history more broadly um, until later with studies like yours. And this brings me to to just point to how the stories you collect from the Thuar guide you to pay attention to the role of silences, which you have touched on. you know, regarding certain practices that happened during the revolts, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, selling land to the Zionist movement, you know, these kind of taboos, a theme that recalls Mm -hmm. uh, Nietzsche's notion of active forgetting. And among other tensions, you describe the agreements and disagreements between popular Mm -hmm. and more standardized Mm -hmm. accounts of Palestinian history. Mm -hmm. um, And you know, your whole discussion about subaltern memory and building on Ranajit Guha, this interplay of submission and resistance uh, within subaltern memory, uh, as it responds to settler colonialism and ethnic cleansing and violence in Palestine. And so my question, um, and this might be more methodological other than, is what do we do with, with all of these tensions and contradictions? Given those that came up for you as you studied, you know, this slew of narratives, this hodgepodge, as you've said, do they do these contradictions lead us somewhere? Does does something emerge from them, um, which is maybe a Marxist kind of idea, Um, or are the contradictions themselves what we are after?
1: It's a great question. I mean, I kind of want to take it two ways. So, I mean, I was just trying to understand memory and how it worked and how popular consciousness worked around this particular I mean it's you know a really important yeah event in in, in Palestinian national history although you know an important event that seemed to be not made as important that should be in my in my opinion I mean it's like the great uprising in the Arab East in the interwar period um well no other than the Syrian revolt out right after the mandate but you know after say 1922 and that I mean you know Between the wars, I mean, it's like, it's the biggest, yeah, it's the big one, and and it was it was you know, I mean, it was a big deal in the in the region, and people were concerned about it and trying to send aid, and but I mean, I was just trying to make the fact that there were contradictions. I mean, I was just trying to like why you know like why are they what are these based on what are the reasons? Though in some cases, I think it's it's actually not that hard to imagine why that there were some silences. You know, like oh, there are people that were selling land. I mean, what's about the worst thing you could do? Other than you know going over and fighting with the British, no, I mean selling land, arguably probably worse. So you could understand how that's that's taboo. But there were other things I don't know if they were taboo, but like you know stuff that the rebels did that you know people knew and didn't really want to talk about, or occasionally somebody would talk about it and then shut up, (laughs) you know, or or somebody would find out that you know their daughter had told you this the story or you know, Grandma told you the story and the men were like, no, 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 the grandma said, you oh, that for me. <laughs> you know? um, so I was just trying to, I mean, really, but I was just trying, you know, why is this happening? Right. As to, as to, you know, like, where does it lead? I mean, I'd never thought of this before. Um, this You know, of, of, in this way before. But I mean, Gramsci was interested in common sense of the Italian subaltern, right? But meaning peasants, proletariat, Artisans, intermediate, you know, whatever, scuffling lumpen proletariat, right? I mean, he was interested in that because he wanted to, he wanted to like understand, you know, what is it? And then let's find the good sense in it, try to figure out how to grow the good sense in order to seize power for the, you know, for the working classes, right? I mean, that's not my project as to, you
3: know, right?
1: It's not like, not my project, not my job, not my duty. I mean, I don't know, but somebody could, do something like that with it. I mean, so I didn't really have a political agenda of that sort. I mean, I guess the political agenda was do some research on Palestine <laughs> that, that maybe had some use just so there's more, re, you know, so there's more work in the field of anthropology on Palestine, you know, just make it help make it more of a legitimate topic. I mean, I could have done anything and it would have, you know, I mean, anything, you know, living under occupation and the West Bank, I mean, almost anything you could talk about would have some kind of political significance, um, always, always does, especially if you, you know, try to, if you respect the people that you're living with and not in favor of the occupation. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if that's a very good answer to your question. Oh, I wanted to say something about lack of support for oral history. That was the case. Birzeit has been doing, have been doing a lot more of that. And Rochelle Davis has written this book about village histories. And a number of village histories were, have been published by, I forget which department or, or center it is at Birzeit. Sharif Kanan has been involved in that. I've read two or three of those, you know, uh, that had come out when I was finishing up the book. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so Birzeit, national institution, um, doing that. And then um, Diana Allen. Yeah, so she, you know, she set up this Nakba archive um, I mean, she established it. I think everybody else involved in it is in Lebanon, you know, Palestinians in Lebanon. And they interviewed tons of people, refugees. I mean, there's hours and hours and hours of data. And she has a book coming out about the, the NECPA, Soon, Pluto Press. I'm I have, Like a lot of people contributed to it. I mean, she gave us, I, I, I was asked, so I have something on 1936-39 based on a couple of the interviews. It's really mostly about yeah. Um, poetry and, and music, which I know a little bit more about than I did when I was doing this research. Um, so I think, you know, there's, and, and, and there have to be some other things. So there's yeah. more. I want to say um, one other thing, which is that um, the the research that Sonia did was, was supported by the um, Arab Studies Center in Jerusalem. Um, which was headed by um, Faisal Husseini, whose dad was a commander in the world, Qadr. and they were shut down by the Israelis in it 2005, 2000, something like that, right? So anyway, so Sonia had this, this grant, right? Uh, what the Arab Studies Center wanted from the grant was they wanted the interviews. So all the interviews that we conducted and that she conducted on our own, we paid for someone to transcribe them and the tapes were at that the Arab Studies Center archive. The Israelis closed it down and took all of our stuff, everything that she and I did in terms of interviews, tapes, and transcribed interviews. Stack, you know, two feet high, is is not in the hands of the Palestinian archive. It's in the hands of the Israelis. And when I retire, I'm going to try to pay some attention to this and see if I can sue them because SSRC paid for. A lot of that. Um, If anybody out there has ideas about, (laughs) I might. I've talked to someone about this. I just, I'm, I'm, I have another year, uh, go teaching, and then I'm going to sort of go back to some of this stuff. So I'm, I'm I'm concerned to get those um, rescued. Wow. Um, We we didn't tell you know the people that we were interviewing or the families that we make it into an archive, right? And there's some sensitive stuff there. So I don't. I'm not really. But anyway, I mean, hopefully, at some point, people will have access to it. And there's, you know, I, I can guarantee you, there's a lot more in that stuff that could be used.
3: Uh-huh.
1: So anyway,
0: could you could you uh, tell us a bit more about your dynamic with with Sonia? What that was like? You you mentioned she always had little interventions in, into the questioning. I mean, what what was that? Like? What was it like working together?
1: You know, I was thinking about this. Um, and, you know, like, if I believed in a God, God, like, put us together. <laughs> because for me, that was just, like I, like, I I. don't know what I would have done yeah. for research. <laughs> because because she, I got so much access to people that I, mm-hmm. I, I just never would have had. It would have been so much more work. I mean, I might have found 15 guys in a year and a half to interview, you know. Um, so it would have been very different kind of project. Yeah. Um, and really all I had for her was a car, right? That was my contribution to her. Uh, no, the contribution, the contribution was a car. The fact that I was male, the fact that I was American,
2: right? Mm-hmm.
1: Because the problem that she had when she was interviewing was that people didn't take her seriously because she was a girl, mm-hmm. woman, woman was a grown woman, but you know, like, yeah, come on. Right. Yeah. But I'm I'm along with her like oh there's this guy he came all the way from america like let's
0: tell him
2: yeah
1: yeah wow this is okay so, so they took her seriously much more with me along and then i had transportation which she didn't have mm-hmm. she, you know had, she didn't own a car I had, you know at src grant <laughs> i had a car but she's fantastic to work with i mean it's just unbelievable
2: mm-hmm.
1: um collaborative work is great we i mean i don't know you should you, you all should interview her um, <laughs> about her experiences, too, because she's a great person um, and really smart and um, hasn't published much on it. But she did publish uh, an article or a book chapter on um, the the commander that, you know, based on all the people that we talked to, is the most admired and seemed to be the most honorable, Abdurrahim Hajj Muhammad. She has a great book chapter on on him if people are interested um, that's, that is the, that's the piece on that, on that guy, um, who was, by all accounts, a really great and important man is still, who's still after Qasam, after Abu are probably the most uh, remembered in a, in a good sense. So yeah, no, it was great to work with her. I'm really, I'm really glad I, I got to do it. And I, I mean, you know, I was something, some, some force blessed me that she came up to me after I'd been there I heard about you. I heard you were okay to work with. Okay. <laughs> and her family were fantastic. Took care of me sometimes when I would taken care of. And actually, I mean, and I don't know what to say about what was quick That's inside okay. about what was interesting, but you know, that I was working with a woman yeah. in Palestine. I mean, so no, here's the thing, right? So it would probably be counterintuitive that anybody would think that you could like go to Palestine in 1984 and uh, go traveling around all over with a woman and you were both married but not to each other. And their parents thought it was okay. And occasionally we were like staying overnight somewhere, right? You know, at a friend's house or something like that. I mean, that's, today it might be more taboo because things have got more conservative in Palestine. So that was kind of remarkable, I think. And it says something about like how tough she was and, Pal- you know, Palestinian women. Of course, the fact that she would been, you know, she was, she was imprisoned for being a member of the Democratic Front. So she spent three years in prison. So she had a certain... You get a lot of respect for doing that. Not many women at that time had been, you know, put in prison for that for that length of time. Yeah, and all I, I guess the, the thing is that when she got out of prison, all of the men—I mean, you know, like the mayor and all the important men, everybody—like she gets out of prison, she's at her house, so they all come to her house to pay their respects and congratulations for getting out. Like her, da- like after that, her dad is We're like.
2: Done.
1: Okay. <laughs> She gets to do what she wants to do and nobody can say, right? I mean, if she, if that hadn't been her experience, then the two of us driving around, there would yeah. have been, people might've said things, but you know, mm-hmm. she was golden at that that moment. So there were all these kinds of, you know, things mm-hmm. that kind of converged that made it um, possible yeah. for us to, to do what we did.
2: Um, yeah.
1: Mostly, mm-hmm. mostly about her.
0: So I'm sure <laughs> you too. I mean, you mentioned, Way at the beginning that you spent some time in DFLP offices in Jordan. Did I hear that correctly? Or so I'm sure you too had.
1: I had friends. I had friends in the DFLP. I mean, this is like 6970. Yeah,
0: much earlier. Yeah, yeah, but
1: yeah. No, they, they, they. It's talking to them that kind of got me into mar- Marxism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, can I t- can I tell you something? Just that occurs to me that happened. That happened today?
0: Yes, please.
1: Okay. So. Yeah. This person I'm Facebook friends with, who I don't know. I mean, I never met him, but you know, you become Facebook friends with people because. So he says, in the course of my history studies, we read your amazing book, Memories that Revolve, blah, 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 blah. While reading the book back then in 2010, I coincidentally read a story about a young man called Ali Hamuda. On page 108, you write, so Sheikh Ahmed Atuba and Ali Hamuda from Tamsiha, and a group with them, they placed the mine. They placed the mine at uh, Kufri Yasif. When they planted the mine, an English army car came by, and the mine blew up the car, and nine soldiers died. seems like, in fact, they killed one person, in fact, and wounded two. And then the, the, the British went and burned up 50 houses in Kufri Yasif And then people from Kwekat, a village nearby, came out to uh, look at that, see what was going on, and the British killed eight of them. And so the person that told that story is somebody who um, was in the revolt and his brother was killed and all these people were killed and his name was Ali Betam and he had this had this list in his pocket of the names that he wanted to read to us before we even started the interview. Right? It was like amazing. So anyway, so this guy says, this Ali Hamuda from Tarshiha is my great-grandfather. He left Palestine for Lebanon in 1948 to live in Beirut. In Beirut, he took part in the clashes of 1958 and fell in battle in his diaspora. And he says, Thank you for telling me the story about my great grandfather, because I wouldn't have known of
2: I got
0: that today. Oh my gosh.
1: So weird. Anyway, there you go. It's like, it's a day, right? Like that. this happened and that happened. I mean, I don't know if I've ever gotten a note from someone saying, Oh, I heard this story about a relative. That's
0: amazing. Isn't that wild? Wow!
1: I hope it's a good omen. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway.
0: <laughs> um, can we speak about the Intifada? Mm-hmm. As I was reading, um, especially your chapter on the first Intifada, where you you have that amazing analysis of of the woman who was throwing stones in 1936, and then the women in in the first Intifada. And the angel Gabriel spilling his stones and why Palestine is full of stones. I just love that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have been an American who lived in Palestine who told this story. I actually don't. Huh. Or lived in the West Bank who told the story. And, and I've heard it in 1961 or 62. And it stuck in my, well, the reason it stuck in my head is that we are in the north. Anyway, my dad was taking this picture of like the countryside, Right. And the countryside is all rocks and stones, you know, you know, up in the hills. And it's just and and so my dad used to go home for be with the family like he always got slides out, and we would look at the slides. So, I mean, I had that like there's a memory of that story because it's associated with this particular photograph my dad took. <laughs> Did any Palestinian ever tell that story? I don't know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I thought
0: it was great. I mean, it just answered my question of why it's so rocky. So, yeah, so as I was reading uh, the whole book, really, thought a lot about how time shapes how memories of the revolts are told and retold over time, and how the Thuar, the, the rebels that you interviewed, lived through and understood the revolt against the British before the Nakba in 1948, mm-hmm. and how the revolt uh, was understood from a very different vantage point Than remembering the revolt in the mid-1980s during the first intifada um, in terms of how the ongoing Nakba might structure these stories in the 1980s or even today in the present, Um, but also how the horizon of the future in the 1930s for these rebels looks different to the horizon of the future for the intifada generation, for instance, or even for the youth mobilizing around Sheikh Jarrah today, um, despite the stakes for Palestinians remaining the same. And, you know, I was struck by your chapter on the Intifada uh, in the late 1980s and how you noticed uh, a more open and honest discussion on some fronts of the 30s revolts, particularly in terms of its, quote, failures, Um, Yet how certain elements like the subversive peasant rebel hegemony over the middle upper classes was forgotten in these reflections. I'm curious uh, how these moments during the Intifada where the revolt was remembered. um, I'm curious about them for two reasons. These movements cannot ever really be fully demarcated, of course, given how Intifadas recur and repeat especially in refugee camps, though, you know, the moment that we're doing this is so um, telling. Uh, Repetitions that are a form of continuity in some sense. Um, And then the forms of violence that British and Israeli forces respond to resistance with like curfews, raids, and other forms of colonial violence are also similar policies that have been ongoing since. So on one level, it is notable that there were resonances between these two grassroots movements in the 1930s and the 1980s. For instance, the Hamula, the extended family, uh, played an important role in spontaneous mobilizing and organizing. Um, you know, all of this you you discuss in such detail. The, the local ties that became strengthened in villages or existing tensions between families that might have, you know, for, been further eroded during the revolt... And there are similarities, I think, also at the level of tactics, you know, like the use of tax revolts and mass boycotts and printing bayonets and forms of uh, popular sovereignty and self-sustainability. You described that alternative legal system that I found so interesting and accountability system that rebels came up with spontaneously. So I wonder to what extent did people in the first Intifada... Study the revolts in 1936 1939 for ideas of practices So that's my first question
2: (laughs) Okay,
1: um I have some thoughts about the things that you said before but to respond to that question um, Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think they were I I think so the 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 way I would think of it is that people knew that thirty six thirty nine was a ruptural moment exceptional moment like Mm -hmm. huge numbers of people uh mobilizing um i mean in different in, in, in somewhat different ways i mean i think they would like it was invoked symbolically a lot in terms of it being a tradition of resistance that people thought of and and drew on i don't know other than you know say in a village or a neighborhood or something like that maybe some old person had said and they people remembered doing doing something or the other. I don't think I'm not sure there was any anything that they could have looked at that was written um that people might have directly drawn on. So I think symbolically it was it was yeah, this is another great rising. And I mean it was the it's the one that they talk about. They're not talking about anything else as I mean they, they mentioned some of the other things, but the you know, it's like thirty six thirty nine and it's the antifada. Those are Like, you know, there's the there's a resistance movement, the resistance movement is is not really in the West Bank. You know, it's in Jordan and then based in Jordan um, and Lebanon. But in terms of like, yeah, I mean, I think there were similarities in in tactics. Um, And I mean, I think it's a, I mean, in the sense of like it's it's a, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, what what I said, a ruptural moment. I mean, exceptional moment. Right. Um, Like there was a recognition of that was one. And this was one Mm -hmm. like, I mean, they knew like pretty quickly that, you know, that's what it was. Right. Just important as you know, symbolically, like hugely important. And, you know, Hassan's name gets invoked a lot. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I mean, you were talking about like the the historical moment. So, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it so much until you asked, you know, and I was thinking about Mm -hmm. it. But, you know, like in 1984, 85, I mean, the PLO had just been you know, smashed. I mean, heroic struggle but got smashed. You had the Sabra Shatila the massacres. They're, you know, they're no longer there anymore. Like in 84, 85, it's like our national representative is in exile. I mean, where are they, right?
0: And the archives. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's, and then um, 85, it's, you know, the Iron Fist, they're really, they're really cracking down. So if you weren't in an organization, as most of these people were interviewing in, I mean, it's, if you think about that, the trajectory of Palestinian history, I mean, this is a dark moment in those terms. Right. Right. I mean, it all changes a couple of years later, amazingly with the Intifada, Right. But um, I mean, I think that's, I think that helps make sense of, you know, some of the, I mean, maybe, maybe it's, maybe the book pays some attention to that, but you know, like the bleak assessments of resistance, like, yeah, we, you know, we tried this in 36, 39, and we tried it in 48, and uh, we tried it in Jordan, and then we got defeated in Jordan, and then we just got defeated in 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 Beirut. Uh, we're screwed. Yeah. We <laughs> would have to have a lot of, you know, you'd have to have a lot of um, faith and uh, perseverance, just as I would say that maybe uh, three weeks ago, yeah, we might have thought exactly the same thing. Right, you know,
0: it's really interesting you know. because
1: and and the you know the the thing that was amazing and heroic and inspirational, the Great March of Return. Just lots of people got killed, and then it, you know they tried for a year and a half, very heroically, and you know we in the West and everywhere else, we didn't, nobody it didn't do anything. So now we're by. I mean, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll all be over. But it seems like it could right. possibly be something new. Nobody, nobody heard anything about Sheikh Durah before two weeks ago. Yeah. Right. I mean, and there've been protests ongoing all the time. People, people, settlers have been moving in there and taking over territory there, and then so on for years. Right. And there've been, and I think especially in Sheikh Iraq there've been a lot of demonstration, but it's not that big. And to have this mass. Mobilization. So, mm-hmm.
0: and the way that, yeah, I mean, I a lot apparently has a Palestinian population. You know, like these cities that I, I just didn't, you know, I, I thought it was like, I only heard about it in the context of. uh
1: I want to say no way.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, and it's it's just every city inside forty-eight. Yeah. All you know, it's uh, yeah. it's significant. I mean, it's probably too early to say.
1: Yeah, no, no, we don't, we don't know, but it feels like it could be one. So I guess you know, if, if we're gonna, like, that would be by kind of connection. Thinking about like, I'm interviewing at a at a time that was very dark or very bleak. Mm. I mean, nothing like. Well, I don't know. I guess the you know the massacre at, I mean, eighty two is terrible, <laughs> really bad. Um, but the uh, you know March of Return was pretty. Uh, that was devastating. But I was just also though. I was looking at um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: something, and I'd forgotten that in 2014, the Israelis killed 2,000 Palestinians in that attack on Gaza. Um, this is maybe more intense for the days that it's happening, but you know that was like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, Obama president, and we didn't, you know, nothing.
2: That, <laughs> that's the
1: pessimistic side of me. They see, you know, they seem to get away with everything, even even if there's a lot of a lot of protests.
0: But I think. That-
1: but anyway. I'm, I'm trying to be, right. have a, like an optimistic <laughs> side to me.
0: I hear you though. Um, I understand.
1: You've been involved in this stuff for a long time, relatively speaking. Right. But I mean, you know, given your age, like since you were undergraduate, right. So number of years, right. And me forever. And,
2: yeah.
1: and, you know, we're not even like, we aren't refugees. We're not Palestinians, but you know, something we care about. It's just, it, it, it's too much that it just goes on forever and ever and ever. And, you know, seems to get better for a second, and then gets. You, th- you think it's getting better, and then no, it actually is now getting getting worse. So, but I, I'm hoping <laughs> that, that this is. Pushed. No, I guess what I was going to say is like it's just depressing being an American citizen and knowing
2: yeah.
1: that we are so much responsible for this. It really makes you feel alienated at these moments.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You, you know, you go out of your house and nobody else is giving a shit about it, right? Like, and it's all I'm thinking about almost, you know, right? Yeah. and, you know, you, you worked in Bethlehem. So you feel like you, uh, like, I feel like I owe a debt, like there's a debt. (laughs) People who are hospitable, you know, like always hospitable from the first time I went and continue to be hospitable. So it's a, it's a, it's a debt and it feels like a burden um, of some sort obligation. You can't repay. <laughs> not that not that you or I individually can do it, but...
0: Of course.
1: It would feel better if we were somehow part of something that could, you know, could move things a little bit. Oh, sorry, that was a long...
0: <laughs> no, no. I do want to come back to that because actually my um, my last question will come back to that. Maybe I'll ask the, the second part of that question. So... I guess I was interested in how you talk about failure and how that came up in some of the interviews and it kind of surprised you. Mm-hmm. You talk about this one guy Abu Zain who gave you like a defeatist interpretation of the revolt that left you fed up with him. <laughs> you right?
1: That's the guy that didn't really want to talk about it. There was a plot by the British to get me to pick up a gun to fight against. It's like, yeah! <laughs> "Go away. I don't want to talk to you." <laughs>
0: um I, it was so great that you wrote about it so honestly and I wonder what happens when a reflection takes like a reflection on a a past um, mass mobilization takes into account not only what worked but what really did not of course we must say how difficult this is with a boot on your neck but I wonder what happens when activists think from a place of failure in, in terms of what to do strategically in the future for liberation. Or did this question come up with, with the people you spoke to? Maybe another way of saying, of framing this question is, what lessons have people learned? And uh, what are people doing differently or carrying through?
1: Yeah. You know, um, I honestly, when I reread the book and reread that chapter and then got to the Intifada and the, I had no memory at all that I had that large section about how the negative, like what, what did we learn from the 36 revolt that we shouldn't repeat it's killing traitors, which was somewhat taboo subject when, when I was interviewing people. I mean, you know, you, and, and I mean, taboo or, or that, that because that, that story about, you know, it's a weapon that's been used against them in the histories of the revolt ever, ever since. And it's, it's actually, it's hard to sort it out because it's so localized and, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes you don't even trust the, you know, if you trust the, the, you know, the archives on it. So you can understand why people don't want to dig into that, right? You know, it makes them look bad. I mean, and of course you don't actually know if they know anything about it or not, right? Because maybe it wasn't an experience that they had in that particular village that but anyway, it became like became a public issue in in the Intifada. The thing is that like I completely forgotten that because it hasn't been talked about very much since then, right? It was pertinent then for a not very long period of time because the Intifada, you know, it's like three years. So it's interesting that, that that it was a it became it you know this is you know we shouldn't be doing this and that was like why we lost the thirty six revolt. Now or that was a big problem in the 36th revolt. That's, I thought that's it. I don't think about it in the book Oh, That's interesting that this kind of subject that wasn't mentioned then becomes a subject that's mentioned because something similar seems to be happening now.
0: Mm. Um, no, it just, I'm remembering, I went on a political tour in Nablus three years ago. And um, I don't know if you've been there, but there's, building in the old city in Al Yasmina neighborhood that the tour guide told us that this was the court during the first tifada. And there was a group called the black Panthers and people who I guess, yeah, were traitors were taken there and then sort of judged and then they killed certain people. I just remember that as you were talking.
1: Well, that's interesting. That yeah. You know, that's interesting, but it it, that, that, I mean, and that's a difference, right, that you would be told that that was what was going on and that that would be considered to be, legit. if not legitimate, not like taboo, right? Nobody's going to talk about this. It seemed like in the discourse that I was reading about the Intifada at the time I was writing, people were saying, no, this is really problematic, right? This is, this yeah. is you know, this is hurting us or we should. And, of course, in all insurrections of this sort against, you know, occupiers, there's always traitors. For some reason, like the fact that the French, um, after the resistance won, killed twenty thousand French people who collaborated with the Nazis, and I think killed a bunch, of, you know, along the way, pretty, you know, considered to be pretty legitimate. But then Palestinians are supposed to, they're for some reason they're just not supposed to do anything ever. That mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not justifying what you know killing because mm-hmm. a lot of mistakes are made, and you know it's the heat of war. And uh, I think in the book there's a mention of somebody like a, from the archive and. You know, a guy's wearing glasses and speaks English. And I, oh, they, they shoot him because <laughs>
2: like
1: anybody that speaks English that wears glasses is a you know class traitor. We're just going to
2: shoot him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So this is coming back to what we were saying um, before this about just being Americans. But you do write in this introduction and in this book, but also I read your piece "Occupational Hazards," which is your reflecting on on this experience and you describe your contradictory position being in the west bank during your field work when you tell a story of a young boy who threw stones at your car while you were driving mm-hmm. and you your your friends recommended that you put a kofia on your dashboard um, and you also mentioned how your friends did not react with as much dismay as you had maybe expected them to and this made me think about how you see your own position in the field as one of solidarity, but how this can of course be fraught given power relations as an American in Palestine that are inescapable. And so for this project, for the for this book and generally, how do you walk the fine line of producing work about anti-colonial movements for academia while also working out of a place of solidarity and isn't there also a built-in contradiction there
1: so i wrote this uh introduction at a time when um there was really uh heightened awareness of and and uh, uh people at anthropologists thought it was very important to position yourself in relationship to, to mm-hmm. what you were what you were studying and we were reading a lot of that It's this is not anything new now but it was kind of at the you know at that time or by the mid-80s or so and so I I I thought I should I have this history, so I should probably tell you something about it, so you know where I'm I'm coming from. Um, and I, I have some of this in that introduction, but I mean, I think in thinking about this, what struck me was that, you know, my relationship to the subject is very much governed by the fact that I went to I went to college with well I had a lot of Palestinian friends, right? I mean, they were my classmates in college in Beirut, and we used to go to demonstration together, and we had reading groups together. I mean, there were not just Palestinians, but, you know, Palestinians were important to it. You know, hung out together and drank beer together, coffee together, and went to work camps together, and one of them got killed by the phalangists in the Civil War, murdered, and uh, a couple others went back to the West Bank and then got tortured and, you know, put in prison and so on and so forth. But, you know, these were my classmates, right? They never, I guess, yeah, we were like, I had this passport and they didn't, you know, we were pals. And I think that creates a, a, a certain kind of, um, and you, of course you can get that too if you're like, there's, you can you can have those relations with, you don't know, have to be in, in Palestine to have those kinds of relations. You can hang out with Palis, Palestinians in France or England or so on and so forth. But they never like, you know, they didn't treat me as like this outsider, you know, you're different. But like when we're doing things together, like you're one of us, you're part of the group. I mean, I haven't experienced other third world cultures in this way, but you know, like they just, you know, like if, if, if I decided, okay, I'm just staying here, I'm going to try and become fluent in Arabic. I'm just going to live here. And right. They would welcome you. And if they always were trying to assimilate you, right. You know, like bring you in. You, you know, like we need an Arab name for you, right? So I'm not going to tell you what it was, but I had this nickname, which is this Arabic nickname, and that was called by that, right? And then when I was doing field work, they were trying to figure out one for me, and so one of my friends said, so "He should be Abu Hassan because he has good manners."
2: <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: like I didn't, you know, like. But on the other hand, of course, I knew I always had the American passport, and I could, like, I, I had an escape, right, which they didn't have. Oh, you're American. Yeah, well, we don't like the government, but we, you know, we we like Americans, they're fine. You know, you need to go back and tell everybody about what's going on to us. That's your job. Here's my story. Please go tell everyone. Tell the president, (laughs) you know, so I don't know if that's contradictory. I don't really like to see it as I don't like to, you know, overemphasize. I mean, yes, there's privilege there. But I mean, I'm talking about, you know, like the way I feel and the way I relate and the debt I feel I owe, and then the fact that, and you know this too, that that you know, if you work on Palestine, and that's your thing, right? Especially as a you know trying to be a professional in a field where that's your you know that's what you write about. That's not not to make myself into you know a martyr or having suffered, but that's not an that's a challenge to deal with. Also, like I was saying before, you. I mean, I feel alienated. Especially at moments like this makes me feel alienated. <laughs> You know, if I were younger, I would probably be trying to, you know, like figure out some way to go, at least for I'll, maybe not. I don't know. When the Egyptian revolution happened, I like I, because I taught in Cairo for four years. So I have like a I, I also have a debt and affinity there. So, like, I mean, I had to go to Cairo.
0: But that pull that you kind of need to because the, the, the way that, you know, even just watching all this news, it's one thing to be here versus
3: you know if you're
1: palestinian in america of course you're alienated in a different way because like i mean you know you get the shit that you get for being palestinian especially if you speak out right if we get some of that pushback it's you know it's not racially motivated or something like that but there's a way in which we are i think feel somewhat like traitors to you know the cause you know the cause of america thank god there's more of us when this is going on, turn on. I I turn on Feyruz and Halim Hafez or something like that, right? And I'm like listening to that on the headphones, walking around Fayetteville, Arkansas. like
2: <laughs> me too.
1: Yeah, but like I'm the only person doing this. That's you know, other than some Arabs, right? So like I don't fit here at all, right? I mean, I do, I can, but like yeah, there's a, there's a part of me that is is
0: I understand
1: alienated in some way. I don't I don't always feel I mean, but especially at moments like we're in, right? It's a good time to talk about, I mean, just, God, I can't stand it. Like it's a criminal country. They're, they could stop it and they won't stop it. I mean, yep. like I, I can't stand it. There's like, it creates two kinds of, I guess, if if you want to talk about contradictions or if, if that was your word, like, you know, like it puts you in a con, like you're not, I'm not Palestinian. Right. Although there are people who decide they're going to like, there's this famous, um, the director of Ahakawadi, Francois Abusel, like, you know, his dad, like he had French parents, he grew up in Palestine and he like, okay, he he Arabized and he became Palestinian. He's a French guy, but... I
0: didn't know that actually.
1: Yeah, changed his name and I don't think he, can, I don't know if, I don't think he converted, but I mean he, be, you know, he was French and he became Palestinian and everybody considered mm-hmm. So so you, you know, that is a possibility. Mm-hmm. But you can also be, I think, an expat and, you know, be part of a community that includes Palestinians and you're not you know, so um, yeah, there's you're, 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 American, but you're, you know, like you're also welcomed in, um, but there's a contradiction there. And then you're back in the U S and because of um, the extreme hostility towards Palestinians, I don't know if, 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 <laughs> if you do work with other, many other people where there's that it puts you into, or a feeling of, of so much contradiction with the American society as other issues that you might. That you might work on, I don't want to go into it, but you know, like getting a job was not was hard, and getting interviews was hard at the time I was doing it. Um, it's mm-hmm. changed a lot, thank goodness. There's so many more people who have worked on Palestine who have jobs, right? Palestinians and and non-Palestinians, much more acceptable. But that's, I mean, and I think that's a that is a reflection of, I mean, the fact that the the you know regular Democrats like think that you know, like the mid, like more than 50% think that ne- right now that, you know, Israel should be sanctioned or, you know, like their their aid cut at least or something. I mean, that's a huge, you know, that's that, that's a reflection of a more general you know, tendency that mm-hmm. you have somebody like Bernie Sanders running and saying, you know, decent things about Palestinians mm-hmm. and not run off the rails for them. So, yeah, there's, I mean, not to say that there are people who have had bad experiences and continue to have bad experiences and maybe get fired and sanctioned. We know their names, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's, there's lots, you know, there's so many um, just in the field of anthropology, like just, I mean, there weren't any before. and Now there, there are a lot, and that's great. And and the thing yeah. is having people in right. institutional positions, right, makes it possible for more, yeah, for, you know, to get more in, right? Mm-hmm. When I started, it was not, you know.
0: Yeah, your story about just, uh, I, was it your supervisor or who told
1: you? Well, my supervisor. My, my supervisor. Who was running around with the kufiya? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he was like, a, you know, he supported. He's like, yeah.
2: don't wear a kufiya; you won't get a job.
1: <laughs> and I had to change. I, I mean, I don't know if I had to, but I mean, I felt like I had to change. I hope everybody keeps pushing. I mean, you know, the fact that there's this organization in yeah, Sydney, fantastic.
0: Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah,
1: you're most welcome.
0: It's It's been such a pleasure.
1: Yeah, mine too.
0: So we'll keep each other updated and, you know, hopefully next time we talk, uh, there will be a free Palestine.
1: Yeah, inshallah, inshallah, yare. (laughs) Take care.
0: This was the Voice of Insaniyat, the Society of Palestinian Anthropologists devoted to promoting anthropological inquiry among Palestinians and about Palestine and the rest of the world.